How are you? I'm so good. How are you? I am also so good. And I'm very, very excited to chat with you. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited. So I, I know that you wrote in your email, did you say you're a, a mental health therapist? I am, yeah. Could you just like tell me about that? Like, what do you do? Yeah, so I work for a community mental health center, which is a nonprofit organization. Um, and I have a combined therapy and case management role. So working with folks of uh, usually lower economic status um, who are on Medicaid and, and have a lot of involvement with community systems and things like that. Uh, helping with both psychotherapy and, and navigating the the world as they know it. <laughs> That's amazing. And how long have you done that? Um, I've been at this job for about nine months now. Um, I'm recently out of school, so I finished my master's back uh, last year. And this is my first real job. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And do you love it? I love it. Yes. That's perfect. Well, well listen, I, I don't I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, but I know in your email you said that you wanted to chat chat about um, I believe you said masculinity and mental health and sort of getting rid of the stigma around that. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but whatever you want to chat about, I'm open to talking about. Yeah, that's been something that um, I focused on in school and my research and something that I'm really passionate about working with in my my work now. Um, and I've been just so excited about the way that you talk about mental health, um, in not only in the inner circle, but also in your social media presence and, and just how you kind of navigate the world. Um, so I thought that would be a really cool thing for us to at least start with, um, and hear more about like your experience in that and, and what you've noticed as you navigate that. Um, but I also know that my mental health has taken a huge turn since I've joined the inner circle and had a lot of really cool experiences in there. And so certainly that's something that we could probably touch on too. Well, that makes me super happy. And, and yeah, we can, we can talk about all of that. I mean, I have all the time in the world, so I'll stay on here and talk with you for six hours, but I'm sure <laughs> that you have other stuff to do. Um, so, so where do you want to start with all this? What would you like to begin with? Yeah, maybe maybe let's start with the ways that um, the inner circle has helped me, or at least that I've noticed like mental health coming into play in that. I would love that. Yeah, let's start there. Yeah. Talk to me about like, actually, before we get into into how it's helped, how about we mm -hmm. start with why did you join the inner circle? Hmm. Well, <laughs> I joined by way of the calorie cycling challenge. Um, I've followed you and Susan for a really long time, probably two or three years now. Oh, wow. Uh, That's amazing. Yeah. And I had heard all about the challenges and I, you know, went back and forth about it for a really long time. But then when the calorie cycling challenge started, I decided that, um, you know, I had it in my head that my issue was that I was restricting myself too much and I then I wanted to have tons of fun on the weekends and, and that was ruining everything for me. So I figured that this cycling would be really good for me. Um, turns out that's not what happened. Turns out I eat like an asshole all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and this really like opened my eyes to that. And so once I was then in the inner circle because of that, I just didn't want to leave. Um, it was also right before quarantine uh, or right as quarantine was starting. And so like having access to things I could do at home, um, not needing to be in a gym, um, that was super helpful too. And 
just having a community for me was super important. It came at a time where like my friends were all moving away. Uh, we were obviously really isolated with quarantine happening. And so being able to like communicate in a way um, that was both inspiring and also very like friendly and, and kind um, has just been amazing. That makes me incredibly happy. And uh, I, I laughed so hard when you were like, well, it turns out I, I eat like an asshole all the time. <laughs> Like what, what happened? Like, how did, what did it take for you to realize that? Like, what did you think you were doing? And then what were you actually doing? Yeah, I definitely thought that I was eating like really clean during the weeks and really like staying on my goals a hundred percent. Um, and then on the weekends I, I knew like I was going out with friends and drinking a lot and eating a lot and, um, you know, basically having to restart on Monday and as quarantine began to set in, I wasn't going out on the weekends and eating with friends. Um, I wasn't drinking a whole ton and I still like wasn't hitting my calories. And so I realized what I was doing was eating very small portions in the morning and the afternoon. I'm having smaller meals and maybe a snack, but really kind of like saving my calories for mm. dinner um, and eating like bigger dinners because that's how I prefer to eat. But what was happening was that I'd eat lunch at noon at work not eat anything else until I got home at 5.30 and then have a huge binge snack like chips or um, candy or whatever it was that was probably upwards of like 500 calories and then still having my big dinner mm -hmm. and going completely over for the day. Um, that, for, for whatever it's worth, that is the most common thing that I see people struggle with that they aren't aware that they struggle with, mm -hmm. right? And, and it's funny because sometimes people get really upset when they say, Hey, I'm not losing weight. What's going on? And I say, well, you're eating too much. And they get really mad. They're like, well, no, I'm not. And they'll, th <laughs> they'll think about the time, the time frame that you said was perfect. You're like, well, you'll have your lunch at work around noon and then you don't eat anything until you get home again. Yeah. And so by the time you get home, you're probably ravenous, like super hungry. Mm -hmm. And also in your head, you think, well, I've done so well today because I've eaten so little. And then, so when you think back to, how well you've done with your diet, you think about the times that you've been super hungry, you think about the times that you think you've been super good, and you forget or maybe don't even realize how much you're eating once you get home. Yeah. And, uh, and this is by far the most common thing I think people struggle with even more than I would say the weekends because the week is five days, the weekends are two days, and the, mm -hmm. it, the week just adds up without realizing it. And I think it's difficult because people they're not maliciously lying. It's not like you were like actively, actively trying to push that out of your thought process. You just weren't aware of it until you started mm -hmm. tracking. Is that right? Yeah, totally. So how did you, how did you resolve it? How did you fix it? How did you go from, like, did you change your eating schedule at all? I did. I made sure that I was bringing like snacks to work and even like forcing myself to eat when I wasn't necessarily mm -hmm. starving. Um, it's really, really easy in the mental health word world to be back to back appointments and not eating until like literally you're done. And so even if I wasn't eating my snack until I got in the car and was driving home, um, I would make sure it was a well portioned snack, uh, you know, lots of protein. Um, and that helped immensely because then I wasn't getting home and being starving and uh, not wanting to eat dinner yet and then snacking on something that was absolutely terrible. You just said something that I think is super important and very commonly overlooked. And I think it's actually very hard to do for whatever it's worth, especially when you just start out. You said you were forcing yourself to eat even when you weren't hungry. Mm -hmm. And 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming that's because you knew that if you didn't force yourself to eat, you would eventually be ravenous later on. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. This is, this is strategic dieting is what I call it. Like this is just being Mm -hmm. very smart. It's not going bite by bite. It's thinking, okay, so here I am in this moment right now. And I know that in several hours, if I don't eat this, I'm going to be overly hungry and I'm going to overeat. So I'm going to require myself to have this now so that I can eat a more appropriate portion size later. It, yeah. it sounds simple when we talk about it. And realistically, it is simple, but that's higher level thinking. And, and this is something that I think it, the more people that hear this, there is, I'm getting so excited because <laughs> more people need to hear this. They need to understand if you just go bite by bite and you don't have some sort of plan you're going to struggle. And by requiring yourself to, you know what, I'm going to have a little, maybe a protein snack here. I'm going to have a salad here. I'm going to eat, even though I'm not hungry in order to set myself up for success later. That's so, so important. Yeah. And I think that that strategic part of it is definitely the hardest thing to get down to because we get really stuck in these strategies that we think work. Like I was really certain that having a smaller lunch and saving all of my calories for dinner made the most sense for me because I was always hungrier at night. And I never really stopped to think about like, what would happen if I ate a little bit more throughout the day, I wouldn't need as big of a dinner. Um, Because what's happening was, you know, I live alone, and I would cook a full portion, like a full portion of meat that you buy at the grocery store or vegetables, and then split it between multiple days. But at night when I was really hungry, I was like, well, I can just throw a little bit more on my plate um, (laughs) and not worry about it. And that was obviously causing me then to go over calories too. And so not only planning things strategically, but realizing when our strategies aren't working, um, I think that's been something that I've really gotten out of the inner circle too, is reevaluating as we go. Cause I was certain that that was the way for me to work. Um, and it wasn't at all. <laughs> Can I ask if, uh, whenever you thought like, okay, it's going to be better for me to eat more at night. Was there ever anxiety about, possibly not eating a lot at night? And if there wasn't, that's totally fine. I'm just curious based on your own personal experience. Yeah, totally. There was this anxiety of like, if I don't eat a big enough dinner, then I'm going to be hungry at night afterwards and I'm going to binge because that had always been my my pattern was that I would eat dinner and then get hungry an hour later and eat a bunch of chips or something really terrible um, mm. or go to bed hungry and feel not great. And, uh, so the anxiety was definitely there. Like, as long as I eat a big dinner, I'll feel fine and I won't need to binge, which is also not true. <laughs> and, <didn't happen. laughs> and, and did eating the snacks earlier in the day, did they prevent you from getting so hungry later on? Mm-hmm. Totally. Amazing. I love that. Did, did you ever do intermittent fasting by chance? I haven't. No. Um, mostly because before this job, I'd been a student forever and my schedule was always super wonky and it was never easy for me to nail down a window. Um, I asked because the saving calories for later and then Mm -hmm. subsequently getting anxious before bed is something very common with people who intermittent fast. And so it's one of the reasons why for intermittent, for some people, intermittent fasting is great for most people, especially anybody who struggles with anxiety around going to bed hungry or struggling mm-hmm. with binge eating at night, it is, I, th- I think it's one of the worst things you can do because it's essentially promoting binge eating is what it right. does. 
And again, for some people, based on maybe their work schedule or based on what works for them, it's fine. But the I started intermittent fasting in 2007, and I did it for several years, and it worked great until it really perpetuated binge eating. And I was like, you know what? This isn't for me anymore. Like mm-hmm. It's been around for a long time. Uh, and the more and more I grow as a coach and in this industry, the more I realize it's definitely not for everyone. And I would say mm-hmm. it's probably not for it's probably not best for about 80 percent of people. Um, so I was just curious about that. What about, um, calorie cycling? How have you done with that? How have, have you enjoyed it? Have you not enjoyed it? Do you still practice it? Yeah, I liked it when I was doing it. Um, I think that in the month of the challenge for me, it was a lot of figuring out like, okay, I'm actually not doing what I think I'm doing and I'm eating a lot (laughs) more than I think I'm eating. Um, And so I've adjusted since then, and especially given quarantine and the amount of time I've not been spending out, um, I've done less of a cycle and more of just a straight deficit throughout the week. Um, Perfect. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, but I like the flexibility that things like calorie cycling offer so that once we do get back into the real world, um, there might be some more need for that or like. I guess I actually do kind of practice it now in a less structured way where it feels like if I, you know, I, I'm planning for a straight deficit, but like last night I went out and had a meal and that way I know like, okay, I had a little bit more last night. So today I'm going to eat slightly less calories, but it's not a, mm, like a strict schedule as much. I just know that I have that flexibility within the week to do things like that. That makes me so happy. And that's ex- that's exactly what I was hoping for. Yeah. Because whether or not you do a straight deficit or an alternate deficit or whatever it is, it doesn't matter to me as much as as long as you know there's flexibility within your nutrition. Right. As long as you know as long as you know because you went out to dinner last night and ate more than your allotted calories, you didn't mess up. You didn't screw anything up. Number one, even if you just get back on track today and eat as many calories as you had originally planned, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Number two is I like the idea of looking at calories on a weekly basis as opposed to a day-to-day basis, right? Where it's like because you know that you have a net weekly amount of calories to be in a net weekly deficit if you're trying to lose body fat, well, cool. Then if you go over 200 on one day, then you can just eat 200 less the next day and you're still net equivalent by the end of the week that was my definite definitely my biggest takeaway from the cycling challenge was that like net worth or yeah I guess worth but um because it does feel so much more flexible and so much easier to just be like okay I didn't screw everything up um we have a tendency I think as humans to be so rigid with things Mm. and psychological flexibility is something I preach with my clients and of course in my own life struggle with immensely um but again, I think this is another way that that the inner circle has helped in in increasing that flexibility and being like, okay, this strategy is not working. Let me try a different one. I can look at things in a different way, um, which is so important. I love that. That makes me very, very happy. And I appreciate you being so open and forthright and articulating it very well. I think, honestly, I think people are going to listen to this and just hearing your experience with it and what you struggled with and then where you are now is going to help a lot of people get to a point where they can be like, you know what? Number one, I can be more honest and objective with what I'm doing. 
maybe I'm not being as good as I thought I was. And number mm-hmm. two is here's actually how it works. I don't need to be so rigid. I don't need to be so meticulously perfect every day. There's there's wiggle room that I can fall within and still succeed. Yeah. Yeah, I think everybody needs to hear a little bit more of that. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. So so is there anything else that you wanted to cover, whether in regard to your own personal experience or anything else? Um, yeah, I was hoping we could touch a little bit on like workouts and absolutely what I've kind of learned about myself in that. Um, again, on the on the train of psychological flexibility, um, I I think for a long time I had this huge belief that like I had to work out in order to lose weight and and. Similarly with like eating and binging, um, if I worked out, then I could afford a few more calories during the day and it wouldn't matter if I had a little bit of a binge, um, I could justify it. And something that came up for me with quarantine happening was that I was not working out as much or I was doing workouts that burned less calories and were more more focused on like strength training. Um, And I was still losing weight which was shocking to me. Um, but because my nutrition was going well, it was happening and it allowed me to really take a step back and look at like, what do I actually enjoy about working out? Because I wasn't really having fun. I wasn't enjoying it. Um, and after I did the calorie cycling challenge, I jumped in on kick Corona and the dick (laughs) and got a little bit just like frustrated. I was like, I hate pushups. <laughs> I'm not enjoying these workouts. I'm not having fun. Um, and it felt like a real drain on myself to do them, which is then confusing because there's this really rigid idea that like working out is good for your mental health, um, which it is. And I think there's a lot of pressure to then do that if you're not feeling good, which can often make you feel worse. <laughs> and having that time to reflect on that and think about like, okay, what's actually working for me and what's not. I took some time off from doing workouts, still lost fat and was able to look at it as like, okay, I don't have to do this all the time in order to justify eating food, um, which was a huge, huge shift for me um, and allowed me to explore a lot of other working out options that I hadn't really considered before, like doing yoga or walking more even. Um, So that's been really an exciting thing. That's amazing. That and I, I think you're hundred percent right. I think more people than not, more people more people think that you need to work out in order to lose body fat than don't. And they think that they often think that working out is the key and they think mm-hmm. that nutrition is more of a supplement when the reality is it's completely the opposite. When it comes to fat loss, nutrition is by far the most important and working out is more of the supplement. Yeah. Now I'll be the first to say that sucks. Like, yeah. like <laughs> I would way rather, I've said this since I was in high school, I would way rather work out really hard for an hour every day and then be able to eat whatever I want in whatever quantity I want and have a six pack. Like oh, that, for would sure. be, that would be, I would do that every day of the week for as long as I possibly could because it's significantly easier to put in that effort one time a day and then just be a glutton than it is to keep control of your nutrition, not be a glutton, and yeah. then use exercise as a form. I, I, for me, the way I look at it is this. They both improve your health. And I think obviously you sh- everyone should be aware of the nutrition and everyone should 
be aware of their exercise. Like this is this is, goes without saying, but exercise should not be used as a means for fat loss. I don't. I I think when you make exercise, when you make fat loss the primary goal of exercise, you end up doing things for exercise that are actually going to hurt your performance and you're not going to enjoy it. I think you should exercise to improve your performance and to improve your health. Maybe that's doing yoga. Maybe that's doing rock climbing. Maybe that's strength training, whatever it is. You have to enjoy it and it, you should do it because you love it and because it's going to improve your health and performance. Yeah. If you're doing exercise for fat loss, you what's going to happen is you're going to be doing a lot of cardio. You're going to be trying to burn a lot of calories by whatever means necessary. And that's just not fun at all. Yeah. <laughs> not to mention when your sole goal is to burn calories, you're missing out on so many other benefits. If your sole goal is to burn calories, you're not going to be stretching. You're not going to be getting your mobility in. If your sole goal is to burn calories, you're not going to be doing much strength training. You're probably going to be doing a lot more just running and elliptical and biking, which are fine, but they shouldn't be the majority of your workouts. Nutrition needs to to be the primary focus when fat loss is the goal and exercise should be done as a means to improve your health, improve your performance. And I, the, what you said, I think is arguably the most important is you have to enjoy it. And if yeah. you don't enjoy it, you got to find another, another thing to do. Yeah, yeah. And focusing on nutrition or like coming to that realization, what you just said, that like nutrition is the driving factor. Like I've heard it from you a million times, as long as I've been following you and I've heard it from other people a million times. And I think that for it to finally like settle in, um, was a really cool experience. And I don't know that I would have gotten there without not only support from like the inner circle, but just having experienced it like I did and, and, and allowing for that shift, which I, I needed the support for, I needed the community for, um, so that was awesome. That makes me super happy. And, and it's funny. I've always said, like, I'm not a good businessman, and you'll know why based on what I'm about to say. But I don't care if people don't do the workouts in the inner circle. And as yeah. you know, there are many people in the inner circle who don't actually do the workouts. And, you know, the workouts, I think, they're one of the biggest draws, right? They're like, they take a long time to write. They're periodized. Mm -hmm. They're programmed well. They're very high-level strength programs that can be used beginner all the way to advance. Mm -hmm. but many people go in there and they're just there for the community and the support and the encouragement and the and like the positive uplifting aspect of it if if you don't use the workouts but you get benefits from meeting other people and from getting a better hold of your nutrition and from just having a positive supportive community then that's a win in my book and mm -hmm. i think especially nowadays like especially nowadays i think a scary number of people don't have a positive supportive community of people around them, whether it's in person or online. So just to have that, like if that's the only reason someone's benefiting from it, then I consider that a huge win. Yeah, totally. And I think that's one of the things that makes the inner circle stand out so much um, from other, even just workout programs, because most programs don't include that. And I think that there's not enough emphasis on that in the fitness world. I think that the um, the benefits of community are completely underrated in, in most people's views. Yeah, I very much agree. Very, yeah. very much agree. So is, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, I would love to touch on some more mental health stuff as far as like your experience with it and just 
share my reactions to um, what you've chosen to share just via social media. I think that what you're doing in talking about mental health, particularly as a man, particularly as a man in the fitness industry, um, is huge. And I think that the impact of it is probably immeasurable. Um, but I would be curious to hear like what kind of feedback you've gotten in sharing your journey with therapy and mental health in general. I love, I love that. And I, when I read your email, I got really excited because this is something I'm getting more and more passionate about discussing. And Mm -hmm. it was actually, it was interesting today because I was at jujitsu and, um, there are a couple guys there who I hang out with frequently, but literally just in conversation today, I just brought up, I was like, yeah, so I was talking to my therapist and blah, 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 and then told a story about it. And, uh, that's something I don't think you hear very often in mm-hmm. everyday conversation. Most people aren't just like, yeah, so, you know, I was talking to my therapist and it's like, it's usually something that people keep quiet into themselves and they don't feel comfortable discussing. Absolutely. Uh, and I think for me, it's becoming increasingly more important for me to make it not taboo and not weird to discuss whether it's with my fiance or whether it's with my buddies at jujitsu or on social media in a social media post. Um, and I will say that the first time I'd say the first couple times I posted about it, I got very nervous. Mm-hmm. I, I could feel, I could feel some form of anxiety, some form of, of pressure, some, some nerves. I couldn't pinpoint it. And if you had asked me in the moment, I probably would have said, yeah, there's all this pressure on me. But the reality is I was putting the pressure on myself and I wasn't giving other people the chance to respond. And the mm-hmm. truth of the matter is there has been a 100% positive response to me talking about therapy. There hasn't been a That's single awesome. negative response. There hasn't been one person who said anything rude or condescending. It was has literally all been overwhelmingly positive. Um, and positive from the perspective of I've had many therapists reach out thanking me for promoting it and reducing the stigma. But I think equally, if not more important is a number of people saying, you know, I've been thinking about going to therapy, but I haven't known how to do it or what to do or how to find a therapist. And I've been having conversations with many people about how I found my therapist, how I decided on my therapist and like how often I meet with my therapist. And, and I've gotten many, many people to tell me that because of the post that they ended up reaching out to a therapist and it's, it's been very helpful. So I think, for me, that is the most important part is getting other people to feel confident enough to make that decision to re- to seek. I, I sort of hesitate to say help, but I mean, it's, we all need help. Every single person needs help in some aspect of their life. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, I don't think you necessarily need to have a diagnosis saying anything is wrong for you to make the decision to talk to someone because I think we all need to talk to someone. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you've said so many important things that I like want to touch on, um, not the least of which is that it's so important for people like you to be talking about it because it's a very different message coming from a person or, you know, somebody just like me rather than coming from a therapist. What I've noticed is that a lot of the stigma reduction work comes from mental health professionals, which is obviously incredibly important. Um, and of course we're going to say that therapy is great because we do it and we know what it does. So hearing it from a person who is in whatever other industry, you know, whether it's a a 
chef or a fitness influencer or whatever it might be. I think that that just raises the bar so much um, and makes it so much more accessible for folks who are struggling with that decision or struggling with how to find one. Um, I also really appreciate your comment about like feeling that pressure and how it feels like it was just coming from you. But I want to bring some attention to the fact that like there is a ton of societal pressure, particularly for men and male identifying folks that you can't talk about things like that. I mean, you can't talk about feelings, let alone going to therapy for, for feelings. Um, and that's where that masculinity piece comes in. And that's something that I'm so passionate about um, in that those expectations need to be shattered, in my opinion, <laughs> um, because they're there and they're stopping people from having these conversations, which is then creating more stigma and you know, the cycle goes on. You know, it's interesting because... I, I don't know. It was within the last couple months when I was thinking, like, I don't know if there's societal pressures. Like, I, I don't necessarily, like, because what I see now more than ever is so much discussion around men being vulnerable and mm -hmm. men opening up and saying that vulnerability is a strength. And I see so much of it. But someone else pointed out to me, they were like, well, growing up, did you ever have anyone say to you, like, be a man? Mm -hmm. Or, like, growing up, did you ever have, like, someone say to you, like, well, like, just stop bitching about it? Like, yeah. And I was like, wow, yeah, absolutely. That happened a lot. Um, so I think that changed my perspective. And I think what's interesting for me now is I think as a society, we've actually grown a lot in many, many ways, right? I think mm -hmm. we've grown a lot and we're, it's becoming much more open to, uh, in, in, to many different things, but in this specific context, it's becoming much more open to men being vulnerable and open and men being able to cry and men being able to talk openly about their issues without as much of a stigma. But what I think I overlooked is the, the stigma or the, how long the pressure might last for, right? So what happens to us as a child clearly has major impacts on us as we grow up. Mm -hmm. So even though society has improved and grown and and Im ha has become more open-minded to it over the years, if that's what you were brought up with as a child, that you were told to just be a man and just to, you know, suck it up and don't talk about it and keep it to yourself and no one cares, that was a big one for me. That was actually something I spoke a lot about with my therapist and I still, I still struggle with it is the idea that, well, no one cares, so stop complaining. Mm -hmm. Like that, that's been said to me a lot and I've even reiterated it like I bet if you go back and look at my content from 2011 2012 2013 you'll probably see whether it's in articles or YouTube videos where I would say like no one cares so stop complaining and it was it wasn't because I didn't care but it was because something like that's what's been said to me and that's was mm -hmm. what I internalized so I think that you're absolutely right and I think a lot of the societal pressures that we were brought up with have carried over as we've grown and as matured right. into adults. Yeah, and such an important point that like the society is changing. There is a lot more freedom for men to be vulnerable and and to even reframe like vulnerability as strength, but that doesn't unlearn all of the things that we learned growing up. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how like the newer generations grow up because we can, again, sit here and say to all men, like, yeah, it's okay to cry. And there's always going to be that internal thing that they've held on to for however long um, that's going, yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> Absolutely. It's not. <laughs> so 
facilitating that and, and giving examples of it and, and doing it in real time. Like I said, it's just so much more powerful than I think most people realize. And as a mental health professional, I just so appreciate having heard you talk about it so freely um, because we're still living in a world where men don't seek therapy as often, not even just therapy. They don't go to physical doctors more um, as often. They don't talk to their friends as often. Um, in a study that was done in 2010, a majority of men said that they didn't even see depression as an issue. They just thought they were supposed to be that way. Um, and so we're then complete suicide four times as often as women do. And all of these really negative side effects of people just not facilitating these discussions um, or feeling comfortable in doing so. And so the impact of, of having somebody who the world might see as like, this macho person, right? Um, having them facilitate these conversations is just so powerful. So I'm very feeling very lucky and grateful to have you on right now. I mean, this is your area of expertise. This is not my area of expertise. And I would, I would love to be able to hear what your advice would be to a number of different people, right? So, I mean, there are many people who listen to this. There are many men. There are many women. I would love to hear your what you might say to first. Let's start with, let's start with maybe women, whether it's a, a daughter, a sister, mm -hmm. a wife, someone who, who has a a male or or men in her life. That how would you recommend they speak to this significant other? to help them get the help they need? Like, how would you recommend facilitating that, facilitating or, or starting that conversation? Yeah, I think it kind of depends on the role that you have. Um, I think the most important one is going to be parents talking to young boys in particular, because that's where it starts um, mm -hmm. and facilitating conversations about emotions. Uh, one of the most common things is that we see is that boys learn that anger is the most acceptable emotion um, and so that's what usually comes out. And there's typically things that are so far underneath that, like sadness, loneliness, longing, um, not feeling cared for. Those are all underneath the, if you think of it as like an iceberg where anger is at the top and all of these other things are at the bottom. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, and so facilitating those conversations, whether you are a parent with a young child or you know a, a wife with their husband and thinking about noticing the anger and trying to pinpoint or helping them pinpoint what's underneath it. Um, even just being there to listen. If you're not comfortable saying like, hmm, something else is happening here, we need to get to the bottom of it. Really listening to what they're saying and, and pinpointing for yourself like, gosh, that sounds like you're feeling kind of sad or that sounds like you're feeling um, overwhelmed at work or whatever it might be and just facilitating conversations rather than ignoring the signs um, or ignoring the like signals that there's more happening. Um, and then offering support in the ways that you can, whether that's listening, whether that's distraction or fixing a problem if you can. And bringing up conversations about therapy in a very like non-judgmental, very straightforward way. It's being like, hey, you know, I know this one guy who went to therapy, he really loved it. Or I've been to therapy. I really love it. And and like you're saying, talking about it with your friends, um, your kind of micro groups and just being like, yeah, I was talking to my therapist the other day. Talking about it in that way just brings about this normalcy much more powerful than saying, hey, you know, it's okay to go to therapy, right? Like it just 
facilitates a sense of like, this is the norm. It's okay to do this. Yeah. I love all of that. I really, really like the bringing it up in daily conversation mm-hmm. around sort of like bringing it up in daily conversation when you're not actively trying to get them to do it. It's sort of like right. when people ask me, well, how do I help a significant other pay attention to their health or improve their nutrition? For me, the number one thing is like you just focus on you and you set the good example because totally. it's, it's the daily habits that they see that are going to have the biggest impact. And if you just come out of nowhere and just say, Hey, you need to improve your nutrition. Well, good luck. That's not going to help. Um, right. but when you talk about therapy on a, on a regular basis, and so it's not a weird word to hear, or you think that only people with issues see a therapist, then mm-hmm. when you bring it up eventually, then it won't be this attack. They won't see it as an attack. It will be more of a, well, this is just a normal discussion. And Let's continue to see where it goes as opposed to thinking that this is they're attacking me or they think something's wrong with me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's, again, why I think your ability to talk about it is so powerful and, and why it's a sort of a chicken and egg thing, too, because there's a stigma about talking about it. And the only way to break the stigma is talking about it. So <laughs> someone's got to be brave and do it. Um, and I will applaud anyone who is. What, what would you say to any men listening, like to any, whether they're teenagers or in their 60s, 70s, whatever, like, what would you say to any men listening who maybe they're at this point, they're convinced that therapy isn't, um, isn't a bad thing and that they're open-minded to discussing it, but they don't know what the next step would be. Like, how do they find a therapist? Like, how do they know if they have a good therapist? Like, and this doesn't even have to be just for men. This could be for women too. Like, what would you say mm-hmm. to that person? Like, what would the next steps be? What do you, what do you think they should do moving forward? Yeah. I mean, the first coming from a, a professional lens, the first step is always checking with your insurance and <laughs> if you have it and figuring out who you can go and, um, and see. I would also recommend like exploring all options out there. There are wonderful therapists who aren't licensed yet, so they don't take insurance um, and you pay out of pocket um, that are amazing. So really looking into options online, um, finding at least two that sound good and scheduling consultations with both. Um, I don't think that enough people know that you can like interview therapists essentially. I did not know that. Yeah, it's really important because the fit that you feel with them um, is the most important indicator of success. So being okay with trying a couple, if you need to, some people get really lucky and find a great one on the first try, and that's even better. Um, But knowing that you have options, knowing that your feelings in the matter are really important, and you should feel comfortable and happy with them. Um, And then as you're comfortable talking about it with people from the beginning, you know, getting support in the decision, letting someone that you really trust know, I'm ready to take this step. I think I want to, and reaching out for help with that as you need it. Um, But involving social support from the beginning is huge because it, it mitigates the need halfway through to be like, man, I'm talking about some really tough things in therapy. I need somebody outside of it to support me as well. Um, Yeah. That's what I would say. I love all of that. I, I have to tell you, tell you a couple like quick stories, yeah. all sort of intertwined into one, just to be very forthright. So, no, do you know why I ended up reaching out to a therapist? I don't remember what you said. No. So I don't. I think I mentioned it in a comment once. I don't think I, it was like a big public post, but I want to talk about this just because I think 
it, it's really important. Like when I, I didn't actively call my insurance about therapy. Mm-hmm. What happened was, is I was having a payment issue with, insu- with my insurance where like, even though I was on auto pay, it was saying that it wasn't getting paid. And I was like, well, all right, well, this is an issue um, because I pay my own insurance. So I just, I mm-hmm. had to call them and get on the phone with them. And, uh, and we figured it out and the payment was fine. And they were like, oh, sorry, it's a gl- glitch on our end. Is there anything else we can help you with? And in that moment, I was like, oh, you know what? I've been really thinking about doing this for a while now because I've been having pretty bad anxiety. And like that thought happened in my head in a split second. And I was just like, yeah. are there any therapists in my network? Just like literally out of nowhere. I was at the end of the conversation. I was in a hotel room. And they were like, uh, yeah, let me check. And they said, yeah, we can send you a whole PDF of them. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that'd be great. Could you send it to my email? And so they sent it to my email. And I, they ha- it was like a 10-page list of therapists all specializing in different things. And I scanned through and I emailed uh, – oh, no, I called. I called three or four of them. And it was on a Sunday. And none of them picked up. Mm-hmm. And I, I left a voice message. And – one of them replied the next day. Just no one else had ever reached out to me since then. So only one of them replied. And then I ended up texting back and forth with them. And I set up an appointment. It was all via text. Mm-hmm. And then I got on, uh, it was a Zoom call because of you know the pandemic. Mm-hmm. We're all, we can't meet in person. So it was a Zoom call. And for whatever it's worth, um, <laughs> the first meeting I had with them, I was like, I don't really like this guy. Yeah. <laughs> Like the first meeting, I was like, ah, I don't know. He seems a little weird. Like, and I don't know. I just, I was, there was something about him where I was like, I don't really like him. Now I love him to death. And I think he's a great therapist. Uh, I, so for whatever it's worth, I think from the perspective of, I, I didn't know that you could interview a therapist. I also know that if I had interviewed him with the idea of, at the end of that interview, me deciding whether or not I would continue with him, I probably would have said no because I was looking at it as an interview. But there might be, I would say, maybe give yourself a three to five session minimum where you say, give give this person three to five sessions. Totally. Because if it was only that one session, I would have been like, yeah, no, I don't like that guy. Yeah. Um, the other thing I also want to say, and I haven't told anybody this, is – I was very embarrassed when I first signed on, when I made the appointment. And mm-hmm. so, you know, my assistant and my fiance and, and Rico, they all have access to my calendar. Mm-hmm. So whatever I put in my calendar is the, everyone's going to see it. And I was embarrassed. So instead of putting like therapy or anything, I just put a random name, which would mm-hmm. denote like sort of a meeting. And that was it. Like I, I made up a name and I just made it seem like I had a meeting and, uh, and then it took about three weeks or four weeks before I really told my fiance, I was like, Hey, just so you know, like this is actually like therapy. And she was super supportive about it. And she was like, Oh, like she, as she always is, she's incredibly nice about all that. And she's just very supportive in general. Um, but I tell that story because I want to be forthright. Like if you are embarrassed, like cool, like you're welcome to feel embarrassed. But I think that if if you if you are honest about it and you at least you do it for yourself first, and then as you get more and more comfortable with it, you don't need to tell the world that you're doing it from the very beginning. But totally, 
do it for yourself first. And then odds are you'll probably find through doing it that you get more and more comfortable with it. And then if you decide to share, amazing. And if you don't want to share, that's fine too. I think for me, I look at me sharing as as a responsibility because I have a, a larger audience. And, and so I, mm-hmm. I want to use that for as an opportunity to help people, but you don't have to be going on your Instagram or Twitter and telling everybody that you're seeing a therapist. Like you don't have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to totally normalize the embarrassment because it's so real. I mean, when I went back to therapy this last time, I also lied to my friends about it who are also all therapists. And if you can't (laughs) tell them, who can you tell? Um, So that's real. It's so real. And while the support is helpful as you're going back, it should come as you're comfortable. Um, yeah. And I appreciate that you recognize that responsibility with a larger platform. Not that I think by any means that people who have a platform should use it for X, Y, and Z. Um, it should obviously be all theirs, but I appreciate you taking on that responsibility because it's so important and so powerful. Absolutely. And listen, I mean, for anyone who has a larger platform, it's it's their platform and they mm-hmm. built it. And I'm in no way telling anybody what they need to post because it's up to them and it's their mm-hmm. platform. But obviously, we all have issues that are closer to our heart and it's all individual. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think this is something that for whatever reason, I was like, all right, this is something I really want to push. Yeah. Um, so Megan, I mean, this has been incredible. I, I want to give you the floor if you want to talk about anything else. You have anything else you'd like to discuss? I'm I'm very excited about this because I know for a fact it's going to help a lot of people. Um, but I also want to give you an opportunity to say anything else you'd like to say, or we can talk about. I, I said I'll be on for six hours, so it's, it's up to you <laughs> if you want to say anything else. Yeah, um, I think I'll just close with the fact that I really appreciate your passion for this topic. Um, I hope that you continue to to talk about it and and really work in that good fight to reduce the stigma. Um, cause I have so enjoyed listening to your journey. Um, and obviously noticing the impact that it's going to have. Um, I do have to go back to work, unfortunately, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I just, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and, and so appreciate everything that you've given me through the inner circle. Um, because it's been huge and, and being involved in that community and, and now having this opportunity to, to do this, uh, and reach out to a lot of people is, is truly life-changing for me and has been a huge part of a massive amount of growth that I've seen in the last year. Well, thank you. And before you go, I want to, you do not have to do this. It's entirely up to you. Um, Mm -hmm. would you want to share where maybe people could reach out to you, whether it's Instagram or an email? do not have to if you don't want to you might get a fair few but I, do you <laughs> want to share that if like people are looking for more help or guidance because again this isn't my specialty this is your specialty so it, would you like to give that information out yeah totally um my social media is very private because of my clients but um people can reach out to me on my personal email which is m n s o u c y 16@gmail.com Amazing. Megan, thank you so much. This has been a blessing and I sincerely appreciate you. And, uh, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Sounds good. Thanks, Jordan. Bye-bye. Bye.